0: Heavenly Father, I am always thankful for the privilege to stand up and to preach your word and to speak the truth that it contains, and I thank you for this opportunity tonight as just as you've given it to me so many nights before, and I thank you for an audience ready to hear your word, that there are those whose hearts are inclined toward your word even in the midst of a time and an age in which so many have turned aside. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to know these things, to know things you have prepared for us and have done so with great eternal purpose and benefit, and we look forward to understanding all that we are being given here, if not tonight, in some future day. And uh, let us all, Father, give our full attention tonight to the Word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Basically, we took a pause last week in the study of Exodus so that we could take time to understand the law and its purposes in God's plan for Israel and for believers in general. We looked at that from several perspectives. First, we learned the three general principles for how to understand and interpret the law. And they were that the law is a single entity given to Israel as part of a covenant, that the law is not given for the purpose of personal salvation, and that the law by itself cannot produce sanctification in the life of a believer or saint. And then we went from there to study the ten purposes for the giving of the law to Israel. There were theological purposes, there were national purposes, and there were individual purposes. And I will not recount them all tonight, but there were ten of them. And then lastly, we examined how a Christian, those saints of today, should understand and apply the law, knowing that we now live under grace. We said that because the law was fulfilled by the Lord on our behalf, we therefore are not obligated to keep the law ourselves that Christ's perfect obedience under the law is credited to us on the basis of our faith. And therefore, you and I cannot improve on Christ's perfect work in keeping the law. And therefore, we live under liberty, not under the burden of trying to keep the law. Now, it was at that point last week that I began to address an objection that I said we will commonly hear from Christians who have been taught to believe that the Ten Commandments still have authority over us today. And the objection you'll hear those people raise is that if it were true that the entire law has been set aside, as I taught, then am I suggesting Christians are now permitted to murder or to steal or to do whatever is written in the Ten Commandments? That's the objection you hear. The question tries to make a point by showing that since it's ridiculous to suggest that Christians can now murder, then the question itself must prove that the Ten Commandments are still in effect. They argue from a point of ridiculousness, basically, that if the Ten Commandments go away, we'd be allowed to murder since we know we're not allowed to murder. Therefore, the Ten Commandments must still be in effect. Well, my response to that argument was a three-part response. First, I said no Christian has ever felt license to murder simply because they learned that they are not under the Old Testament law. We still know instinctively. What is wrong? We still know that lying is wrong. We still know that stealing is wrong and so on. So that fact in and of itself tells us that we don't need to rely on the Ten Commandments to understand what is sin. That there's another source apparently within all of us for recognizing what is sin because self-evidently we recognize it even without the Ten Commandments having power over us. Then secondly, I repeated one of our guiding principles, which is that the Ten Commandments cannot be separated into parts. It's all Or none, according to Scripture. And therefore, if we were to argue that the Ten Commandments are still required for us, are still in effect over us, then we must also be willing to live by the other 603 commandments. Because, as Paul said to the Galatians, law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Meaning, if you're going to get into the process of practicing law, you need to practice all of them. You need to live by all of them. Clearly, no Christian is arguing, at least none I've heard, For a reinstatement of all 613 laws. And therefore, we aren't living under the ten either. And then finally, the third thing I said about that question. I said that preserving the Ten Commandments does nothing to actually prevent Christians from committing murder or sinning in any other way, for that matter. In fact, Scripture teaches us exactly the opposite. Romans 520. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So every Christian, as I said last week, has broken all of the Ten Commandments repeatedly in one form or another, whether by thought or by action. So you can't claim, we can't claim, that the Ten Commandments are the key to keeping Christians away from sin and directing them toward righteousness, because if that were the case, they're failing miserably at it. The law by itself only serves to identify sin, to name our sin. It does not have the power to reduce sin. So that's where we left off. Now, as we move forward into the law itself, we need to set a framework. I'm going to set a framework for how we're going to study it, because when you think about it, we have 613 laws in the Torah generally all the way through the end of Deuteronomy, but a large number of them are found in Exodus. So If we're going to study the law going forward now into this book, the question comes, how are we going to do all this in a timely fashion? First, we're going to address the law in sections grouped by purpose or by theme. So we may at times read a very small section of scripture and talk for a period of time about that. But at other times we may read a whole chapter. Because the theme or the purpose of all the laws that are within that passage are are under a similar purpose. And we can group them in that way. When we do that, we're going to summarize the requirements and the purpose of those statutes in Israel's day, how they affected Israel's life. We'll look at it from a historical point of view. Then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to examine the text for its symbolic meaning. In many cases, the Old Testament law provides pictures of Christ, of his work of redemption or of his coming. And in other cases, you're going to see symbolic meaning in which the Old Testament law foreshadows greater sanctification available in the new covenant. So sometimes it's picturing Christ, the man, the work of Christ. Other times it's a picture of how the new covenant is going to ultimately arrive at things that the old covenant simply shadows or or pictures And we'll talk about that. So there's symbolism of Christ personally. There's also symbolism of the power of the covenant. The old is a lesser to the new, which is the greater, and one foreshadows the other. In order to understand that symbolism, wherever we find it, I have to cover one final preparatory point tonight before we go to the text. If Christians are not bound by the law of Moses, which we've established, then how does God regulate our behavior today? What is the framework, in other words, for our sanctification? Where the Old Testament saint had the law, which provided regulation for their life and guidelines, guardrails for behavior and an obedient heart and a believing, faithful heart in that system found sanctification by obedience to the law. The law didn't provide the sanctification. It's the heart and the spirit working that made that possible. But the law was the framework. When the Old Testament saint said, what do I do to please God? The law was there to explain it. We don't have the law. So what is our framework for sanctification? As we look at the laws of the old and we understand how they foreshadow the better of the new, we need to understand what does this new thing look like? What is that framework we're comparing to? Well, we find the answer in 1 Corinthians 9? At least that's one place. In a passage where Paul speaks about changing his lifestyle to accommodate the different expectations of different groups of people. In 1 Corinthians 9:20 20 and 21, Paul says this, To the Jew I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, I became as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Paul said that when he lived among the Jews, he acted as if he were one who was under the law, meaning under the Mosaic law, because that would be the expectation of a God-fearing Jew. Jews were bound by their covenant to live according to the law of Moses, so if Paul was going to appeal to them, as a friend or an ally and live amongst them, he couldn't risk offending them, and so that required that he live like them, as if, he says, under the law. So he returned to a lifestyle of living the Mosaic law according to what was acceptable to the Jews, and he did it so that he could gain a hearing from them. But nevertheless, notice, Paul says, even when he was living this way, under the law, he says he still understood that he wasn't actually under the law, He wasn't required to do this. He was choosing to for some greater good. It was a choice intended to further the purposes of the gospel. He was choosing to live as if under the law. Now, when he moved from Jews to Gentiles to a different population, he moved to a group of people who did not live under the law. And so Paul also stopped living under the law when he went to be with Gentiles. Now, that statement, by the way, is all by itself proof that Paul understood that Christians are not bound by the law. For I assure you, if Paul believed that Christians were still bound to keep the law, he would never have set himself outside of the law and stopped observing it. He would have been knowingly sinning. But Paul says, I did it freely because I know I'm not under the law. Well, if Paul's not under the law, then certainly Christians in general are not under the law. But moving on. Then Paul gives us a point to remember, the key point for why I mention this passage. He clarifies that even though when he was with Gentiles, he was not under the law of Moses. He says, but I wasn't under no law at all. He says, I was always under the law of Christ. All Christians, apparently, are subject to a new spiritual law that regulates our behavior, just as the Old Testament law regulated the Old Testament saints' behavior. And that new law, Paul says, is the law of Christ. So what is this law of Christ? If there was a law of Moses, now that law has been replaced with a law of Christ, wouldn't you like to know what the law of Christ is? It would seem imperative to know what the law of Christ is, wouldn't it? The law of Christ, Paul calls it, is the law that for a believing Jew replaces the Mosaic law they were previously living under before they knew Christ. For the Gentile, the believing Gentile, we were never under the law to begin with. So the law of Christ is our first exposure to law and to holiness. Where before we were strangers to the covenants, Paul says in Ephesians, we were without hope in this world and did not know God. That would have been the state of the Gentile world before the gospel comes. Now they have an exposure to God through this law of Christ. Hebrews tells us that this law of Christ is a better law than the Old Testament law, and it is better in every way, but we can summarize why it's better in three ways. And in the three ways we are going to summarize it, you and I will have a fairly good understanding of what it is. First, the law of Christ was delivered to us in a better way than the law of Moses was delivered in its day. The law of Moses came as part of a covenant mediated By angels. It was written on tablets of stone. It was handed to the man Moses, who then delivered it to the people of Israel. Because it was delivered in that way, the content of the law was limited to only 613 commandments. After all, he couldn't have lifted a stone tablet. You know, bigger than a certain size and they can't haul around more than a few. There's a limit, a physical limit. There had to be a finite number of laws when you deliver them under those conditions. But the law of Christ comes as part of a new and better covenant mediated not by angels, but by Christ himself. It is a code not written on stone tablets, but written on our hearts as we come to faith. And as such... It's not delivered to us by a man. It's delivered literally by God himself, the spirit who is the author writing those laws on our heart. Spiritually speaking, that is a fulfillment of a promise God made when he spoke about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31:33. He said, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. A promise spoken to Israel, but made available to the Gentiles during this period of time in which we are being grafted in to the promises given to Israel. So the first way in which the law of Christ is better is it came in a better way, in a way that is far superior to what was given to Moses. Secondly, the law of Christ is greater than the Old Testament law in scope, in what it contains. The law of Christ incorporates every expectation of the old, all 613 commands, in the Old Testament law, are found in the new law of Christ. But this goes far beyond anything that was given in that law. It goes beyond simply regulating the things that the Old Testament law addressed. And it begins to regulate things that the Old Testament law never even spoke about. For example, the Old Testament law says you cannot murder. But Jesus said true holiness requires not even harboring hate for another person. The Old Testament law said nothing about hate The Old Testament law forbid adultery, but the New Testament law of Christ says that lusting in the heart is also sin. But the Old Testament law said nothing about lust. And the Old Testament laws for the Sabbath or the Old Testament laws for sacrifices or for the other rituals. Those are also represented in the law of Christ, but in new and better ways, which we're going to learn later when we examine those laws in detail. That's what I meant when I said when we get there, we'll be looking at how the New Covenant takes those laws and expands them in a new and better way. And we're going to relate one to the other spiritually. By the way, this is why the law of Christ has never been written down or enumerated entirely, nor will it ever be written down and enumerated entirely. It is literally impossible for the law of Christ to be completely written out on stones or otherwise. Its statutes are too vast. They're too numerous. In fact, they're infinite. You can no more write out the law of Christ than you could write down every possible number. For as soon as you thought you had finished, I can give you one you missed. Because it's not designed to be limited by what we can conceive. It has an infinite list of statutes because human experience and therefore the potential for human sin is also limitless. So you can't catalog the law of Christ, but instead you can... See it represented in broad strokes in the teaching of the New Testament, in what Jesus says and in what the epistle writers wrote. For example, as John wrote in 1 John three twenty four, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us when Jesus was asked to summarize the law, Matthew 22:37, he said to them, you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So the best we can do in trying to enumerate or describe the law of Christ is to summarize it in these broad strokes. There will be times in the New Testament where I can find statements in Scripture that correspond to some of the laws you'll find in the Ten Commandments or otherwise against lying and against stealing. And there is a commandment against stealing. And so I can see that the Old Testament law is still being represented in places or in ways within the New. This is why we can say with confidence that having put the old law away, I'm not worried that Christians are going to suddenly feel the privilege to murder or lie or steal. The law written on their hearts is still encompassing all of that holiness and a great deal more. The third reason, the third major difference between the two, and that being that the law of Christ is superior to the law of Moses because it is accompanied by a spiritual power that can compel obedience. Our new law is administered by the Holy Spirit who indwells us from the moment of faith. He does three things. First, he educates us concerning what is righteousness. John 14:26. but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the first role of the spirit in conjunction with administering the New Testament law is to teach us about it. You tell me, well, Steve, how can I follow a law? I don't understand. I don't have it all written out. How do I know what I can or can't do? You have a spirit who knows it all and is teaching you in an ever present way. The real question is, are we listening? The second thing the spirit does, he gives us the power to actually act on what we learn to overcome our flesh. Paul says in Romans 8 two, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is the New Testament law we carry with us has set you free from the law of sin and death, which is the law of Moses. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Walk according to the spirit is a biblical way of saying, listen to the law of Christ and follow it. But it comes from the power of the spirit in us that we can even do so. Remember, the Old Testament law only existed to condemn men just to show them their sin. It never had the power to compel righteous behavior. It acted like a finishing line in a foot race that no man could ever reach, that as you've approached it, it faded into the distance again. But the law of Christ is like a wind to your back while you run that race, pushing you, guiding you in the direction of holiness. That's the process of sanctification that produces fruit in a believer's life. What's ironic when you think about it is that the law of Moses could be read and understood by anyone, but it was powerless to create righteousness in anyone. While the law of Christ is the law that has the power to compel righteousness, but it can never be seen or understood except by the believer's heart. Now, because the law of Christ is experienced only by faith through the spirit in our heart, rather than by looking at a long list of commandments and rules, that's why the New Testament writers call it the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We have liberty in ways the Old Testament saint never experienced. Since we are covered by the blood of Christ, we no longer need to concern ourselves with animal sacrifices. The temple, the priesthood, the tithes, the Sabbaths, all of these things in the Old Testament law, they are all replaced by better things in the law of Christ. It's not that they have been done away with or that they have been thrown away or made irrelevant. It's that they have been served in greater ways. And therefore, many of the restrictions of life that were imposed upon the saint by the Old Testament law are removed by the law of Christ, leaving us with liberty to act in many ways according to the leading of the Spirit. Moreover, the new law of Christ, being accompanied by the Spirit, affords us the power to act righteously in circumstances where the Old Testament spirit had no guidance whatsoever, no understanding of what God expected. So as we take time now to study the law, we're going to take time to seek parallels with the New Testament law. When we look at an Old Testament law, we'll stop at times and say, now that no longer applies to us because it's in the old law. What is our equivalent? How does this live in our life today? And in what way do we see it? mapped to the New Testament law, and we'll look for those. So with that background now, we can move into the law itself, beginning with the first ten statutes, and we're calling them the Ten Commandments, of course. Let's revisit where we are in the book. We're at the beginning of chapter 20, and where we left off in the text, Moses has been standing at a distance from the people of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai in this mountain range of Horeb. The Lord has descended on the top of the mountain in a cloud and with lightning and thunder, and he speaks with a voice that sounds like thunder. And in the end of chapter 19, 1924, the Lord told Moses to go down from where he was up with God and tell the people, warning them not to intrude past the barriers that have been set around the base of the mountain. And then in that same verse, the Lord then told Moses to return once he had delivered that warning. He's gone up. God says, go back and talk to him when you're done. Come back up. So then he goes back up. That's where we are now. So as we enter chapter 20, the people are at the base of the mountain still with their warning. Moses has returned to the top with God. And as Moses enters into the presence of the Lord's Shekinah glory, he receives the first ten statutes of the law of God. The number ten in Scripture has a meaning of testimony. Whenever you see the number ten used, it means testimony or a witness in some sense. So these first ten laws are given a special designation so that they may testify. What do they testify? Well, in two ways. They testify first to the holiness of God, the standard for God. Remember when the rich ruler talks to Jesus and asks, "What what must I do to enter into the kingdom? What did Jesus start listing? The Ten Commandments. Why did he pick these? Because as a group, they form this testimony of holiness. They by themselves produce a standard that is impossible to live up to. Never mind the other 603. Therefore, they have a second purpose. They testify to the sin of man. So anytime you see a plaque or a framed picture of the Ten Commandments, it's not wrong to do that, but what you're looking at is a testimony against you, a declaration of your sin. While the Old Testament account does not specify how these laws were delivered, the New Testament gives us that answer. In Galatians 3.19, The Lord used angels to deliver the law to Moses. Hebrews 2.2 says that the law was spoken through angels to Moses. What Moses receives came by the mediation of an angel. So when the New Testament says the law was delivered through angels, what it probably means is Moses took physical custody of the tablets from angels. Most likely, the angels themselves were responsible for creating those tablets and transferring them to Moses. We're told this at the end of Exodus, Exodus 31:18. when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he, the Lord, gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. The transfer of those stone tablets then was from the Lord to angels, from the angels to Moses. And the book of Hebrews teaches us that God used angels As mediators for this covenant, because someone had to stand between God and man. Why? Because men could not be in the presence of God. Men could not be in the position to directly receive anything from God. So God used mediators to transfer the law to Moses. But he used lesser mediators than the one he chose for the new and better covenant. Angels in this case, Christ in the case of the new covenant. Now, the first Ten Commandments are best known, of course, for obvious reasons. They're the most sweeping in scope. In fact, these laws are unique in all the ancient world. They're unique in all ancient history, in particular, because they're stated in the second person. All other ancient laws that have ever been discovered are expressed in the third person. A man shall, a man shall not. And the reason that most law expressed in the third person is because that tense reflects the way that laws are the product of a community of people or of leadership within the community of people, declaring what that group of people wants to see happen in their community. Whether it's done through some kind of monastic system or democratic system or otherwise, it still is about the community. But these laws are expressed in the second person. You shall. You shall not they are authored by one who is in authority over those who must abide by them. It also reflects that they are not binding on the one who gave them. They are not subject to the scrutiny of men because they didn't come from men. They don't bow to men. Men didn't create them and we're not free to change them. So let's read now the first 10 laws. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you and your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, chapter 20 opens. Moses says, the Lord spoke all of these words. So from chapter 20, verse 2 onward, it's the Lord speaking. And as many people say the Ten Commandments, what's interesting is, in reality, there's not universal agreement on what the Ten Commandments actually are or on how they may have been distributed across the two stone tablets that we hear were handed to Moses. There's a debate about how you divide out the language of the passage I just read to arrive at Ten Commandments. If you've never heard that before and you're wondering, well, how can there be any doubt? They're all there right in front of you. Well, let's take a look at them and you'll see the problem. The Jewish historical view saw the first commandment to be the statement in verse two. I am the Lord your God. That was considered a commandment to them in the sense that it was a truth that had to be remembered and honored. It was a truth not to forget it, in other words. A commandment to always be mindful of that truth. Then for the Jew, the second commandment runs from verses 3 through 6. That encompasses both not having other gods and also prohibiting the worship of graven images. That's all just one commandment in their minds. Then the rest of the commandments follow until you get to verse 17. And then verse 17 is the 10th. So they take the two forms of coveting and they combine it into a single commandment of coveting generally. So that's the Jewish view. And then with regard to the tablets, the Jewish tradition holds that the first five commandments are written on the first stone and the second five on the second stone. The Catholic tradition sees the first commandment as starting in verse three and incorporates everything through verse six. So the instructions against idolatry and worshiping graven images are seen as a single commandment. Then to still arrive at 10, the Catholics divide verse 17 into two separate commandments. Coveting a wife's neighbor is the ninth. Coveting a neighbor's property is the 10th. Now, there is a problem with this approach in that it often results in truncating that first commandment. And anytime somebody writes these out briefly summarizing them for people. What are the Ten Commandments? Well, in the way the Catholics have combined both worshiping idols and worshiping graven images, they often don't think to mention the second half of that when they write it out. So the prohibition against graven images is often omitted. Now, you could argue that it's done consciously for reasons of their own, but whether that's true or not, the point is that many Catholics never have heard that God considers worshiping statues of saints or even statues of Jesus himself, to be sinful. Because that side of the commandment is hidden in what's said before it. Catholics hold that each tablet also contained five commandments each. Finally, Protestants. The Protestant tradition sees verse 3 to be a commandment of its own. Then the second commandment is verses 4 through 6 that prohibits worshipping images. So the Protestant view is you may not have an idol, And you, secondly, may not worship a graven image. Then the Tenth Commandment is all of verse 17 in the way that the Jewish tradition holds. That there is simply a prohibition against coveting in general. That would be the traditional Protestant view. Now, many Protestants have come to believe that the first three laws were on the first tablet and the next seven were on the second tablet. They do that based on an observation of the commandments themselves. The first three regulate our relationship with God. And the last seven regulate man's relationship with one another. And so that becomes an argument, I guess, for splitting them in that way. It's also possible to see it another way, though. You could argue that each tablet had a complete copy of all Ten Commandments because the Bible tells us that the tablets were written on both sides. If so, perhaps that was because they needed the room in order to hold all ten in a tablet that was still small enough to be carried. And if that's true then the need for two tablets being identical, both of them having the same content, was to fulfill the requirement of Scripture that there would be a testimony of at least two witnesses before sin can be condemned. And that effectively the two tablets become two witnesses against the sin of men. That's all tradition. There is no way to prove what was on the stone tablets, but those are different views that are out there. We're going to follow in this class the Protestant breakout of the Ten Commandments because you've got to pick one. And if you're going to put numbers next to them, we'll use that system because Charlton Heston was probably a Protestant. So (laughs) we're going to go with the Charlton Heston method. (laughs) So we're going to study the first commandment as verse three alone. So let's start there. First commandment. Israel is told to have no other gods before the Lord. Now, the term before is not intended to suggest that you can have multiple gods so long as Jehovah is first among them. The phrase means to have no gods apart from the Lord. So Israel was commanded to be monotheistic, monotheistic. God was using the covenant to appoint for himself a single people group within the nations of the world for himself. He chose one nation for himself, and to that nation he is declaring, you have one God for you, the only God, the only true living God. Throughout their history, Israel has repeatedly violated this commandment. They have worshipped pagan gods of various kinds throughout their history. They have even, at some points, sacrificed living children to false gods. The Lord says Israel played the harlot in that respect, prostituting themselves to many suitors, though the Lord was husband to them. You can find that in many places, particularly in Ezekiel, but Hosea 4.12, the Lord says, My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them, For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. So the first commandment is one that has a long history of being broken by Israel. The second commandment follows very closely from the first in verses 4 through 6. Israel was to make no image that could substitute for the Lord's presence. Notice in verse 4, the prohibition is against making any idol in the likeness of anything in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, as in in the water. That means Israel cannot create idols that resemble God himself or angels for the purpose of worship. And neither could a likeness of any earthly creature or created thing be used for worship. Now, images themselves are not wrong. In fact, Israel is later commanded in the law to create images of angels and put them on the mercy seat. So it is nothing wrong for us to have images in some kind of religious context But those images cannot be worshipped. That's the sense of a graven image. Incorporating images in worship is so closely related to the first commandment that the Jews saw them as a single commandment. And perhaps they are. We're we're listing them out however we choose. In the end, it doesn't matter how we number them. They're just all there anyway. But they see it as another form of idolatry. You can't make a distinction between the two in this sense. In the case of the first commandment, the issue was who a man worships And in the second commandment, the issue is how a man worships, that being toward an image as opposed to toward the living God without form. In verse 5, the Lord adds that worshiping such things would invoke his jealous anger. Incorporating man-made objects in worship necessarily diminishes the Creator. There is no avoiding it. If you create something that is supposed to stand in for God, By its very existence, it diminishes the creator that is greater than all that can be created. But more importantly, it opens the door to violating the first commandment because at some point it becomes an object that replaces the Lord altogether. So if I am truly of the Lord and wishing to follow him, but I begin using graven images to substitute for his presence. First, I'm worshiping him through a graven image. I'm violating commandment two. Down the road, if that turns into worshipping the image itself, because I've become so comfortable with it, I've now moved into violating Commandment 1. And it would seem logical to think that God expected that progression, and so he links these so closely together. You could think of worshipping graven images as sort of the gateway drug into full-fledged idolatry. That's one of the reasons why, in the Protestant tradition, there's such a strong prohibition to the kind of imagery that is typical in the Catholic tradition because those images for many Catholics, unfortunately, for many individuals, become the substitute for worshiping the true living God. And we don't want to ever run the risk of that. Now, the question may come as to what can we do in liberty in the New Testament law in light of what the Old Testament law prohibited for Israel? Well, Christians have been given similar prohibitions in the law of Christ, according to Christ's own teaching. But our standards reach to even more demanding levels. First, we are told to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We read that already. And the word all in that statement of Christ's emphasizes the exclusive nature of our relationship with Christ. If you are giving your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength to the Lord, what's left? Obviously nothing, and that's the intent. There can be nothing left. The New Testament law, what we can understand of it, broadly speaking, from what's written in the New Testament, tells us not to serve other masters like money. John repeats this command in the New Testament when he writes 1 John 5, Little children, guard yourselves from idols, things that substitute for dependence upon the Lord. And we are to guard ourselves from such things so that they will not become idols. Now, having said that, it's possible to trivialize the concept of idol by calling any distraction or any temptation an idol in the life of a Christian. That TV is just your idol, honey. Golf is your idol. To be fair, it is true that many pleasures and worries of life can become stumbling blocks for Christians in their walk. Just as Jesus said in Luke 21:34, be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that the day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. For It will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But it's another thing altogether to be taken away by an idol. That is a different thing than being taken away by temptations. Both are bad. Both have their consequences. But they're not the same thing. An idol is something that substitutes for our Lord in our life. That's a serious matter. Though many, maybe all, Christians fall prey to temptations and stumble at some time in their walk with Christ, in my experience, relatively few succumb to genuine idolatry. We have one example of that, though, in the New Testament letters, at least one. Paul, in writing to Timothy in his first letter, mentions an example of two people who, from the text, seem to be those who you might think fell prey to idolatry in the true sense. 1 Timothy 1.18. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now think about what he said about those two people. He says they were ones who are examples of those who rejected keeping the faith, as opposed to Timothy, who he said he wanted to keep the faith. They were examples of people who didn't keep the faith. They suffered shipwreck. They committed idolatry, it would seem, because they're guilty of blaspheming. A blaspheming would be, in the context of a New Testament walk, a literal rejection of Christ, of calling Christ not Christ, of declaring He's not, no longer to be a deity, not, not to be who He said He was. So the first commandment of the Old Testament law has a parallel in the New Testament law of Christ for Christians. That is, not to succumb to idols, in the case of the first commandment. But what about the second? Well, I think... That's an even bigger challenge for Christians than the first. According to the law of Moses, men could never pray to a statue, even to the statue of the Lord. Even paintings would have been outlawed by the law of Moses for the same reason. But as we determined, we're not under the Old Testament law, right? So what does the law of Christ have to say on the matter of graven images? Do we have total freedom there? We know we see paintings of Jesus all over the place, right? At different places, different times, you'll come across somebody who's put a picture of Jesus on the wall. In some homes, it sits right next to the picture of the Pope. And then John F. Kennedy. (laughs) Well, the law of Christ declares that we are not to rely on the physical, even physical locations, to focus our worship to the Lord. So remember when I said that the New Testament law incorporates everything of the old, but broadens it, expands it, takes it in whole new directions beyond what the Old Testament law tried to do? Here's one of those examples. John 4 tells the story where Jesus encounters a woman. And this woman at the well has a question on this very issue, a question about how to worship. And the woman said to him in verse 19 of John 4, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's basically asking him the question, where do we worship to settle that argument? Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So the greater law of Christ takes that second commandment regarding images and broadens that requirement to move worship entirely into the spiritual realm. While the Old Testament law forbid graven images, do you know what it stipulated? What it required? It required a certain day and certain places and even certain manners for worship. Otherwise, it was illegitimate worship. But the law of Christ says worship may be nothing other than spirit and truth. It goes in the complete opposite direction. No form, only substance. And in this way, worship becomes a daily activity, not one restricted to certain days. An ever-present expression, not one restricted to certain buildings. And it's in every believer's heart that it takes place. Days, places, form, all that makes no difference in the age of the Spirit. That's why Paul wrote in Colossians 2.16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, to a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So how do Christians effectively break the second commandment today beyond the obvious bowing in worship to a picture or to a statue? Well, we regress back to placing form over the substance when physical attributes of worship take priority in our expression. If you are dedicated to a certain musical style in worship, or to only certain forms of liturgy in worship. If you won't go into the building because they didn't pick the right color carpet to your liking. Then you're committing a sin equal to, in my opinion, equal to worshiping graven images. In the sense that what you have declared as your focus in worship is something earthly and physical and man-made. Rather than something in spirit and in truth. The worship music style is more important than merely worshiping in spirit and truth or Whatever the issue is, I've been around long enough now to have run into all of those, including the color of the carpet thing, and even things more trivial than that, that divide bodies, that cause people to cease fellowshipping and worshipping within that community. They take the physical and place it above the spiritual. Worshipping man-made structures or traditions or denominational views rather than worshipping the Lord through his spirit and by truth. And when you do that, by the way, you're risking provoking a jealous God. You've trivialized God because you've remade him into an image that pleases the flesh. And that may be the center of all of this. If you're worshiping in spirit and truth, you know the real God because his sheep know the shepherd, they, they hear his voice, they answer it. When you're worshiping something that is produced by the flesh, your flesh wanted it a certain way, so it made it for itself, then you've stopped worshiping in spirit and truth. The last thought I have on the second commandment, it includes that interesting statement concerning the consequences of idolatry For Israel, if they committed idolatry, they were violating the covenant and turning their back on the Lord who saved them. And then when they committed that sin, the Lord promised to visit that iniquity on future generations. That's a promise, I think, that is unique to Israel in the context of the first and second commandments insofar as it relates to idolatry. That when that nation moved into stages of idolatry, as they did, they committed God then, according to his own word, to bring that sin back upon them in subsequent generations. This is a part of how God brings judgment against Israel in a just way so that the time of tribulation has purpose in God's plan. This goes back to our Revelation class. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, with the law of Christ written on our hearts, we thank you for the chance to know righteousness in a way no one else could, that uh, we have something so much greater than you chose to give Israel in centuries earlier and we are so thankful father that it has the power to compel righteousness and to bring us closer to the to the walk you want us to uh, show I ask Lord that we would be attentive and listening to what you say to the spirit on our hearts that we would not lose any opportunity to obey so that we would uh, see reward in the day of our judgment and I pray father that you would continue to convict us as well so that we would uh, stay free and clear from those things that offend you bring us back next week. Let us hear more, Father, for we desire to serve you all the more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.